You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, August 9th, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by our own Jack Farley and our guest, Darius Dale from 42 Macro. Here's what we're looking at right now. Uh, Basically, Dow Jones, Industrial Average, S&P, everything pretty much flat here on the day. S&P off about four points. But this hides the volatility that actually occurred during the day. I'm sure we'll talk about that more during the course of the conversation. Jack, I understand you're looking at one asset in particular. Yeah, that would have to be gold, Ash. This uh, gold had a flash crash late last night as Asian markets opened, plunging below $1,700 per ounce. That would be the lowest it's been since March. But shortly thereafter, gold paired its losses, and it has closed the day just above 1730 By the way, Ash, not a good day for gold. Not a good day for black gold either, with front-month WTI crude oil declining 2%, extending the sell-off we saw Friday afternoon, and now trades below $67. Ash? Yeah, some demand concerns there. I'm sure we'll talk about them. By the way, on equity markets, the S&P 500 and Dow Jones Industrial Average were both up at all-time highs uh, earlier in the day, pairing those coming back down to close uh, slightly in the red. Today, senators have reached a compromise on the crypto tax provision in the new infrastructure bill. Here's the good news. The Senate has not killed off proof of stake. Validators will not be considered brokers uh, and are therefore excluded from tax reporting requirements. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail later in the show. But now to Darius Dale, our guest. Oh, wait, Jack, you got one more story, don't you? Yes, I do. Just to give a little color on that, the infrastructure. So you talked about uh, the crypto specific in the bill. Here, just to give broad strokes, the Senate uh, last night voted to move forward on the trillion dollar infrastructure bill. The final vote will most likely happen tomorrow. The bill includes $550 billion in new spending for the nation's physical infrastructure, and the budget offices estimated that it would add $256 billion to the federal deficit. What does that mean for the bond market? We'll see. But uh, yeah, Ash, back to you. Yeah, for those of us who aren't crypto nerds, this is what the rest of the world is watching from the infrastructure. <laughs> Bill. Darius Dale, our guest from 42 Macro, pleasure to have you here once again. Darius, give us the overview. What are you looking at today? What's on your dashboard? Yeah, I mean, I go back to the infrastructure bill and, and all the sort of the the the, the, the you know the, the drama that we're seeing coming out of DC really starting to accelerate and come to a head here. I mean, it's not just the the the, the physical infrastructure bill, which again is $550 billion. Pelosi's already said that things dead on arrival if they don't pass the actual fiscal 2022 uh, budget resolution, which itself is likely to come after we hit the debt ceiling in early September. Uh, we absolutely have to get a continuing resolution done by September 30th to avoid a government shutdown. And then obviously, there's usually a couple months of wiggle room on the debt ceiling. So we're all headed for a potentially a meaningful impasse by the end of uh, October, early part of November on the on the real actual budget ceiling. So there's a lot going on in D.C., and none of it's good in terms of a headline risk. So for folks who aren't uh, Washington, D.C. wonks, Darius, that basically means that she's tying this infrastructure bill to the annual uh, to the annual budget process. 
Mm-hmm. And and yes, they're, they're the reconciliation process that they're going to use to enact uh, President Biden's three point five trillion dollar uh, infrastructure or you know two trillion dollar budget plan, which obviously includes a lot of the soft infrastructure that we've all learned about thus far in the last you know six to nine months. Um, again, <laughs> that process in and of itself is, was likely to be messy, just given that you had uh, Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema already talking out against the size of the package. And you obviously have Republicans like led by Mitch McConnell, uh, who are effectively saying, "Look, we're not going to hike this debt ceiling if you guys want to dump that much debt onto the uh, national um, onto the national debt coffers." That's it's clearly going to be a, a messy situation. But it goes back to some points we made earlier in the year. Look, three point five. We all knew that four trillion dollars was going to be a number that needed to be haircut. Um, they separated the physical infrastructure from that, and thus far, we're likely to get it. Probably, it could be up to another five hundred billion dollars haircut out of that just to get this thing passed. Because again, the debt ceiling is a meaningful uh, catalyst that the Republicans have in their in their in their coffers as it relates to um, their ability to stymie the legislation. Jack, jump in. I know you have thoughts. Well. Ash, I have to say, you and definitely Darius are are way more in the weeds on the infrastructure than I am. I just want to ask Darius, to what degree do you think that the infrastructure bill has been priced in? Obviously, it's going to require a lot of cement, a lot of steel rebar, um, a, a lot of physical materials, copper, I might add. We've seen those uh, soar dramatically in the first half of this year. They've since rolled over. To what degree do you think that there's still juice in those uh, you know, fundamental material trades now that the infrastructure bill looks like it's going to be passed, or uh, has that already been priced in? Yeah, no, I think I think it largely was priced in. I mean, you go back to the early May highs of a lot of the you know commodity charts, or early the bare minimum early June highs of a lot of those charts, and particularly the leadership of cyclical sectors and style factors that peaked in early June. You know, to me, that's where the market really priced in this sort of expectation for a higher nominal GDP environment. What's changed since then are two things. One, we've really separated out the physical infrastructure from the soft infrastructure, um, sort of, which, in my opinion, I think is an upgrade relative to you know the passage of that. But secondarily, we've also ratcheted down um, ex- market expectations for the Fed's willingness to sort of supply that. This just sort of shift towards MMT, not into MMT, but towards MMT with perpetually easy monetary policy. We've obviously seen the the hawkish stop plot revision that we spoke about uh, so many times on the show in June. To me, that was the biggest catalyst of the year as it relates to you know how the impact it's had on on, on macro markets across the board. Investors were way too leaning long elevated nominal GDP growth expectations on a you know one to three to five year out basis. And they get they got punched in the teeth um, in terms of that as it relates to the Fed's uh, Fed's uh, pivot. Yeah. So I want to just talk a little bit here about the crypto infrastructure bill because it's gotten a massive amount of uh, pickup in the crypto space. Uh, obviously, right now we've seen some positive movement uh, on the crypto markets. Uh, Bitcoin now up over forty six thousand for the first time in the cycle. Uh, forty six one thirty four right now. Ethereum. $3,158, major moves. Here's what's going on and why it's significant. So senators have reached a, a theoretical compromise on the crypto tax provision uh, in the infrastructure bill. Here's what this is about. Effectively, this was a bill that had requirements for tax disclosure for just about everyone participating in the crypto ecosystem. It seems that the original goal of the bill was to basically have reporting requirements for taxation for centralized crypto exchanges. These are the Krakens of the world, the Coinbases. This is something that there's broad-based support for in both both houses uh, and in both uh, sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans supporting this. However, as the bill was originally written, and this is what sent off this 
panic in crypto markets among people who follow this stuff really closely. Uh, originally, this bill uh, was developed so that software developers, node operators, miners, stakeholders, custody platforms, validators, basically everyone who had anything to do with the crypto space had these really onerous tax reporting requirements that just didn't make any sense. If you were a software developer, uh, it doesn't make sense to have tax reporting requirements. This was something that was pretty much universally agreed upon uh, by folks in the space. Fortunately, uh, it was announced today by uh, Senator Pat Toomey and Cynthia Lummis uh, that that was no longer the case, that those categories were going to be excluded, and it's going to target precisely the people it was meant to target, the centralized exchanges. My other really interesting takeaway from this is when you watch Pat Toomey and Cynthia Loomis, the senators uh, on television, giving their debriefing on the compromise agreement. By the way, this has been agreed to by Democrats, Republicans, and the U.S. Treasury, which is an important consideration. The level of sophistication of this conversation is something that I frankly have never seen before uh, in a very prominent briefing where two senators come forward and explain this. These are folks who are really very thoughtful very considerate in the way that they're thinking about this space. And I think it probably is being perceived as a signal that there are serious grown-ups who actually understand how the crypto space works in charge in Washington. We have a decent chance here of getting some pretty good targeted legislation that does the things it's meant to do and doesn't do the things it's not meant to do. That's so bullish. Separating the wheat from the chaff is the most positive dynamic that could actually happen in crypto from a regulatory standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And this is an interesting question. There's a little bit of a civil war in the space on this point because there are those who don't want any new regulation. Uh, they think it should be, uh, you know, basically a greenfield, a, a libertarian paradise. And there are lots of people who have uh, traditional financial backgrounds who say, wait a minute, if you want institutional players to come into the space, it's going to need to be regulated. It's going to need to be legislated. So that's something that we're looking at right now. Jack, what are your thoughts on this? I know this is something that you were uh, chatting with me about a little bit earlier. Uh, to be honest, Asha, I don't uh, really follow this that closely. Um, I I'm more interested in what uh, Darius said earlier about the uh, how it really it was hinged on the FOMC meeting in June and, and uh, June 15th and June 16th. Had that was sort of the moment of truth. You referred to the dot plots. Um, I actually think we're having a little bit of a chart malfunction, but we, it's too bad. I, I, I there's this great chart. I looked back and in, said in all the stocks in the S&P 500. Which of them have performed the best since June 15th, that FOMC meeting, and which have performed the worst? And uh, there's a if you look at which have performed the worst, it's almost all energy companies, airline uh, stocks, and uh, cruise liners, as well as an odd casino or two. So I, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, uh, you know, can Darius, can you can you give us a macro explanation for for why that is? Yeah, absolutely. So that, in my opinion, is the market transitioning from. What had been a persistent trend of reflation going all the way back to the you know sort of November breakout and, and bond yields and things of that nature, all the way through the early part or the latter part of May. In the early part of June, we really developed what we called a Goldilocks market regime, where it was it was very favorable towards the defensive sectors and style factors, defensive digital economy names, mega cap tech type type exposures. And the problem with that, as it relates to that particular interval. Was that investors had really fled a lot of those exposures as a function of the duration risk we observed at the first quarter of this year? I think it was the worst quarter ever for you know like something like thirty-year bond. And so the positioning dynamic associated with changing those market regimes really catalyzed a real big sea change. And now we're actually seeing that perpetuated to some degree um, because again, over the last it's been almost eight weeks now, we've seen 
near record dispersion between cyclical sectors and style factors and their and their defensive counterparts, i.e., cyclicals, you know, going down a lot and defensives going up a lot. Um, that had to get resolved in one way or another. So either cyclical sectors and style factors are going to meaningfully recover relative to defensive counterparts, or the whole market has to go down. I would argue prior to Friday's jobs report, the, mo- the h- highest probability outcome for the, the highest probability resolution was that everything starts to balance and recover together with potential uh, potential leadership change in terms of the cyclicals. However, since the Friday jobs report, which you all know was extremely hawkish and and Julian Brigham did a phenomenal job on Friday, sort of walking through all the implications therein. You know, if we get a very hawkish CPI report on Wednesday, I think the market has really got to price start to price in what tapering and uh, tapering announcement in September looks like, what hawkish commentary coming out of Jackson Hole will look like before that, and ultimately what an October to November uh, tapering commencement would look like for for risk assets. Um, I don't know that there's a lot of sort of you know I don't want to keep rambling here, but I, I think in terms of the gross and net exposure that you know our models and our systems are observing on the buy side right now the market is not in a place where we're likely to see a you know meaningful crash on a catalyst like that but it's certainly one it's certainly a meaningful enough catalyst where you could see you know easily an 8 to 10% pullback in something like the spot hey Darius i've been studying up so just to clarify let me see if i have this right reflation is accelerating growth and accelerating inflation whereas the goldilocks scenario is accelerating growth and decelerating inflation you, sir, are correct, my friend. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Darius, I've got a question. You said crash, and then you said the uh, hawkish jobs report, of course, a beat uh, um, on on Friday. As a result of that, we saw uh, gold absolutely take a huge dive. Let's put this chart up right now. Um, In the blue line, we have gold. Uh, which which crashed on Sunday night. It's uh, made a recovery today, and then in the red you have the ten-year real yield, which is the inflation-adjusted um, uh, yield. That, with the yield you get after inflation, which is inverted. These follow each other very closely. Uh, what can you tell us? You know, when you when you see gold's uh, really abysmal performance last night, what does that tell you, Darius? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think of whenever I see a drawdown in gold, like the one we just observed, is okay, what's happening in real interest rates? And the 10 year tips yield, the Treasury Inflation Protected Security yield, is up 14 basis points week over week. Like that's a mean, that's a big move in terms of the markets, you know, sort of repricing in the scope and spate of liquidity that the Fed is likely to provide over the, you know, let's, you know, let's call it an intermediate term. And so to me, when I see the big down move in gold, it's signaling that the Fed is about to make, in my opinion, what could potentially be a policy mistake, or at yeah. the bare minimum, policy mistake. <laughs> policy mistake if you're long gold and, and long crude oil, which clearly that's what it felt like this to you know the last few four or five days. We've seen you know in the last week or so, you know the 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 the, the pace of declines in something like crude oil, like copper, like silver, obviously gold. We're talking about gold. You know, it's really started to accelerate to the downside. And so, to me, that's an that's a that's a real sort of indication that investors are really giving up the ghost on all things pure reflation because they are starting to understand that this is a Federal Reserve. You know, if you listen to Bostic's comments today, obviously Clarita's comments last week, this is a Federal Reserve that is substantially more hawkish than we thought it was two months ago. 
Yeah. I mean, there's just no bones about it. And, and, and so to me, I think the market at some point is going to have to contend with that and reconcile that if we are on this collision course for September taper. Um, but again, I, I don't know that you, you're going to see investors are not over their ski tips in terms of their gross and net exposure to catalyze a real crash, but you certainly could see a pullback into it and through that catalyst. Yeah. You know, Darius, while we get our tech issues sorted out here with the charts, uh, there's a chart. I mean, the name says it all. It says it right on the tin. Uh, the Fed has a history of prematurely tightening. Describe yeah. that chart to our viewers, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So that that's a you know, 10, 12 year chart of the Fed balance sheet relative to the, uh, I want to say the, the Bloomberg or the Goldman Sachs financial conditions index. Oh, no, sorry, Chicago Fed national financial conditions index. And, you know, what we're seeing the dotted lines in that chart to note you know, sort of the times in history where the Fed sort of pulled back on liquidity provision too soon. Um, QE1, so they ended QE1 um, at the end of uh, March of 2010, and obviously we saw a 16% pullback in the SPY uh, pretty shortly thereafter. They made the same mistake again in 2011. Um, they ended QE2 in, in, at the end of June of 2011. We saw basically a 20% drawdown in the stock market right after that. And so, again, it wasn't about the actual decline in, in, in and asset purchases is the fact that they they stopped the liquidity spigot. This we know. You know, asset markets are increasingly hooked on on this, these drugs, these QE drugs. So just just taking a little bit out of the punch bowl, in my opinion, relative to how the entire sort of um, you know investment universe is wired to perform at this point, is a, is a is a negative catalyst. I I don't want to make any bones about that. There's I think there's a community of investors out there that say, well, going from 120 to I don't know 105 or 110. Is is still bullish? I'm like, no, nah, it's not. That's not how it works. <laughs> that is not how it works. Liquidity is priced at the margin. Price is set at the margin. And if you take away marginal buyers of, of something like a U.S. Treasury, it's going to, you know, if you take away margin by a U.S. Treasury, it could possibly be positive in a debt selling vacuum. But if we're not in a debt selling vacuum where the Fed and the Treasury Department is still issuing debt, that is quite negative at the margin because it means investors have to sell something else to capitalize the U.S. government. Darius, if I, if I may, Ash, we actually, I think, have fixed our chart issue. So we now actually can, let's give two more great charts. One is uh, how, in, how much cash investors have on hand. Um, mm -hmm. And then the other is why investor consensus is on edge, as you say. So tell us about these two charts. Yeah. So the first chart says uh, this we know investors have near record amounts of cash on hand. It's just showing the ICI, money market funds, assets relative to that same Chicago Fed National Financial Conditions Index. And, and just as a, as a, as a point, uh, for, for those of you viewers who are not familiar with that, that index, goes up when things are bad, and goes down when things are good. When liquidity is being tightened at the margin, when the financial conditions are tightening at the margin, the, chart, uh, the, the, the time series goes higher. And so the reason I show this chart is that it's kind of very odd to see investors sitting on so much cash, corporations, investors, mutual funds, all, all, you know, they're all contributing to that number. You know what? They're all sitting on so much cash, even though we have financial conditions, you know, pretty much at historic or dang, dang near record lows. And so that tells you that investors are extremely on edge, which takes me to my second chart. You think about the 2009 analog, 2010 analog. It was it's a very perfect analog for what's happening. Not just because the charts line up. Obviously, both both uh, asset markets bottomed in, in March and have you know really recovered and rallied. But the, to me, the fundamental backdrop is very similar. We had a massive economic event that was that catalyzed a, a market event, massive market event that that required a you know historic change in monetary and fiscal policy to fix. And then we had a you know just a multi-quarter trend of what we call reflation, growth and inflation accelerating simultaneously for an extended period of time for you know well over a year in both instances. 
But now we're getting to the point in the cycle where that's no longer the case. That fundamental, that positive fundamental backdrop is no longer there. So now we're being carried at this point. And certainly by the time we get to September, that's when we really will start to see the trending deceleration in economic activity, according to our models. Once you get to the latter part of Q3 or you know, into and through Q4, we're increasingly going to be relying upon liquidity as the driver of asset markets. So to me, that's why the Fed tapers such a big deal, because if you start to take away the liquidity punch bowl, you don't necessarily have the positive rate of change dynamics with respect to the economy and earnings that you had in the first half of the year uh, to really support asset markets. Check, jump in. Uh, Ash, I'm actually on the back end trying to restart some of these charts. So can you jump in, please? Oh, Absolutely. Word. Jack is not just hosting, he's also the chart DJ for the evening. <laughs> so, Darius, tell us a little bit more. Uh, when you think about this, when you look at the Fed, what are some of the signals you're going to be looking for to make the determination of what you're going to see next? And let's, if you would, talk a little bit about what your expectations are for Wednesday CPI. Yeah, that's a phenomenal question. So, we, like uh, the economist consensus, have the have inflation taking down. Uh, marginally in June. But to me, I think it's less about what the headline says and more about what some of these sort of, you know, kind of these 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 cyclical these 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 um, supply demand imbalances that are really contributing to uh, higher rates of inflation. How do those behave? Well, we continue to see accelerating annualized inflation momentum and things like autos, things like uh, airfare, things dining out, um, and obviously hotels and and, and and things of the such. All the reopening stuff that's really catalyzed. I mean, you know, let me pardon me, let me change a page in my notebook here. I want to say autos were up on an annualized basis. No, you use cars up 231% on a seasonally adjusted annualized basis. Hotels up 149%, airfares up 38%, dining out up 9%. These are some ridiculous numbers. Now obviously we're not going to stay at those rates. But how right. fast do we come down from those rates yeah. is what I'm looking for in terms of the report. Because I think if you get that confirmation that, oh, by the way, inflation is transitory, then we're, you know, it could be in terms of the positive resolution that I alluded to earlier with respect to all the dispersion that we've seen in the markets, I think that puts that positive resolution back on the tape. However, if and, and again, this is obviously a risk. We've seen well, every economist has been dead wrong in terms of the magnitude of inflation over the past few months, including myself. If we're wrong on that, then it literally put it, it it'll it'll suggest to the Fed that hey look this inflation pressure that we're now starting to see observed in the labor market so by the way wages are up five five and a half percent annualized um, in, in terms of the most recent jobs report this labor market pressure we're seeing through is actually starting to filter through to the economy now again I still think it's all going to be transitory uh, but that that might, that might not matter in the moment with respect to Jackson Hole and the Fed September FOMC meeting. Well, you know, Darius, we may not have the exact answers yet, but you frame it out perfectly. Those are exactly the considerations that the smartest folks in the room are watching. It's the second derivative, the rate of change, and what the snapback looks like from the base. These are really the key considerations. I should say, CPI, it looks like year-over-year -year consensus range is 53 to 5.4% year-over-year. That's pretty narrow, 5.4% prior on that print and consensus at 5.5. That doesn't make sense because it's above the range. But those are the numbers that I'm seeing on my terminal nonetheless. Jack, I understand that you have gotten the chart issue resolved. Yes, I have, Ash, and I have to do something which is very important. Uh, on Friday, you were hosting a rally. At the close of the show, there was a gentleman named Josh who uh, asked us a question, uh, what is the correlation, uh, you know, what's the relationship between Bitcoin 
and the bond market, specifically the U.S. 10-year yield. Let's put up that chart right now. It's a screenshot of what he did. And you can see Josh just actually the, gave Just us, the chart I was asking about. Perfect. Yes. Josh gave us $500. Um, so we feel, you know, when someone puts puts their money where their mouth is, we've got an obligation to uh, respond, and it's a great question. So I did a little work, and, and let's see what we got here. Um, so this is the 250-day correlation between Bitcoin and the U.S. 10-year yield. Don't let the mammoth of green on the right side fool you. It only goes to 0.2, so it's not a huge correlation. Um, and in fact, this is the Kathy uh, uh, um, Wood chart of Bitcoin's correlation with other asset, assets from um, Yassine Almandra. Uh, and you see the purple chart, uh, which I've uh, put in a square blocks of, of a box of black. It's you know fundamentally or uncorrelated if you go back to 2012. However, uh, it's not just about the correlation. If you do something called principal component analysis, where you basically factor everything else out, you can get sensitivities uh, that. Correlations won't show you, and this is exactly what the folks at Quant Insight do. They are phenomenal in in their macro principal component analysis, and you can see here that Bitcoin sensitivity to the U.S. 10-year yield um, has been weakly positive and rising. So uh, the what's on the y-axis here is the percent move in the model for Bitcoin relative to a one standard deviation higher in the driver, which would be the U.S. 10-year yield. But hey, the Jack, U.S. 10-year yield, it, Jack, yeah. I'm watching the I'm watching the YouTube screen. I don't think the uh, charts are coming across. Oh, sh okay. Wow. Well, um, we are having some, I think, internet issues probably with me. Uh, so my apologies. I will be posting all this on Twitter. My apologies, Josh. Um, there are some really excellent charts that, that I've gathered. So we're going to have to skip skip past them for now. Darius, you were mentioning that relative to the, the, the different um, regimes that markets can be in, Bitcoin performs well in others and not so well in others. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, in 42 Macro, we think about the world through a regime segmentation lens that allows us to sort of quickly access, store, and, and interact with information coming from both the economy and asset markets, and ultimately use a, a sort of fractally oriented approach that says, hey, all the historical observations are like this, or this defined standard deviation band of outperformance or relative performance or, or you know outcome. And so we're going to assume that the future states, if we can predict those, those the, we can predict the future state of the economy with respect to those regimes. We can actually make some uh, some some money on the long and short side with respect to our asset class uh, security and security selections. Going back to Bitcoin, it's positive is really high and positive expected value in Goldilocks, which is a growth accelerating and inflation decelerating. Uh, a little bit less positive, but still very high um, expected value in when we're in inflation. That's where growth and, and, re, and growth and inflation are accelerating simultaneously. It is a, even less, but still high and positive expected value when in what we call inflation. That's where inflation is accelerating and growth is decelerating. And then lastly, the only regime that you need to be concerned about Bitcoin having a, a drawdown in, generally speaking, is what we call deflation. That's where growth and inflation are decelerating simultaneously, which coincidentally is what we have projected for the U.S. economy starting in September all the way through the first quarter of next year. So that that is something to keep in mind. Now, again, I'll say this a thousand times down blue in the face. We're not necessarily concerned about the pace of decline for either growth and inflation. And that, quite frankly, if you look at uh, in terms of how our back tests are orchestrated, if you talk about a zero sigma delta on growth, a zero sigma delta on inflation, i.e. growth and inflation are slowing modestly, historically, it's actually been quite positive for risk assets and quite positive for Bitcoin. The issue with that, of course, is, again, you have this you know 10,000-pound gorilla in the room that's called the Fed's balance sheet. 
and the rate of change of that slowing down at the margin, in my opinion, it, it could be quite negative. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's really interesting that you say it thrives in Goldilocks. I noticed it's very positively correlated to yield curve steepener trades, so like the 30 yeah. minus the five-year. You'd think, oh, it more trades with Tesla, and it does well. It's a secular grower, you know, but no, it actually does very well. The period it does best in is when the yield curve is steepening and long-term uh, bonds are selling off, meaning meaning yields are rising. I'll also just sort of spoil the lead for for Josh. And again, Josh, I will be posting these charts on my Twitter is that by far the biggest uh, um, drivers of Bitcoin performance was curve steepeners in the US, US yield curve, as well as in Japan, and a five-year credit default swap on Chinese government bonds. Uh, so a lot of interesting relationships there between China and Bitcoin. So uh, it's mm -hmm. not fundamentally uncorrelated, I would say, to the 10-year yield, but it's not a key driver. I, I don't think that's a, you know, you can't give a complete answer without the charts, but that's a, a, a overview. Um, Ash? Well, you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Jack, here's what we can do without the charts. We can go to viewer questions, and we've got a lot of them, and there's some really good ones coming to us right now. Uh, here's one that comes to us from MD Udden, uh, and the question is, gold is down 11% YTD while inflation has been increasing. The question goes on after that, but it really sums it up right here in his, his next point. How can we understand this? It's a great question. What are your thoughts on this, Darius? So gold down, inflation increasing. What's happening? Yeah, no, that's it's it's exactly what you would expect to happen in what we call a trending inflation regime, where both nominal and real interest rates are rising. I mean, gold has it, you backtest gold through the lens of either the economy or through the lens of regime the economy through a dual lens of regime segmentation. You're going to get a lot of sort of noise with respect to the gold backtest. It's a very noisy backtest, unlike many different assets. And and so when you really come down when you, when you boil down gold, it really just comes down to the direction of real interest rates. And clearly, we've seen, you know, at least the early part of the year, a meaningful move higher. Obviously, in recent months, we've seen a meaningful move lower, which perpetuated um, a recovery in gold. But clearly, it's looking like real interest rates are forming a bottom here, and they could actually start to move higher. I don't think they're moving meaningfully higher. Again, in the context of our economic forecast, there's not a lot of upside in nominal real interest rates from here. But certainly, you might not get a lot of downside either as it relates to uh, you know perpetuating a trending recovery in gold. So I still think the jury's still out. I think this is a very important week with respect to getting incremental data. Uh, and if the incremental data goes the way towards you know a, a disinflationary outcome, then I think gold can recover alongside uh, you know some of these uh, these sort of oversold you know sort of things like treasury bonds and stuff like that. Yeah. So talking of great questions, we've got another one coming to us from Gloria Howard. This is from the exchange on Real Vision. Uh, Gloria is obviously fluent in Fed speak. Here's her question. Industrial metals made a decent comeback this afternoon off their morning lows. Is it possible that inflation, whether sticky or transitory, will show up in commodities generally? But money that would normally flow to gold as an inflation hedge is going to crypto instead. Any thoughts on XME and DBB? Is that for me? Yes, that's for you, sir. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't touch either of those with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> uh, and part of the reason, if you're going to be concentrating your, your assets, one, I don't think it's the point in the time of the cycle to be chasing incremental reflation exposure. 
we're actually exiting the reflation regime, the, the regime where growth, growth and inflation are accelerating simultaneously. That's you know that was the U.S. economy since starting back in you know this middle second quarter of last year, all the way through you know basically June, July, um, and really in the early part of August. You know, although we have August as a, as a G, uh, a, a transitory G. Um, so anyway, no, the answer is no. I, I would I definitely wouldn't touch any of those things with a ten foot pole because again, I go back to something I said at the beginning of the show. High beta is bearish relative to low beta. Small caps are bearish relative to mega caps. Values bearish relative to growth. And oh, by the way, the dominant market regime, which is something we haven't talked about today, is actually still deflation in terms of the. So with 42 macro, we run a dynamic factor model with 42 different macro market indicators that you know through the lens of our volatility adjusted momentum signal that allows us to now cast what market regime we're in based on you know our great asset market back tests and all those findings therein. And so we're in deflation. The market is, we're, we're headed for deflation from a bottom-up perspective. We're currently transitioned to deflation from a market perspective. So that tells you you shouldn't be buying dips in things like commodities, buying dips in things like miners. I think there's a lot better places to park your money, if, if not cash, uh, relative to those things. And here's one that I think you will touch with a 10-foot pole. It's right in your wheelhouse, Darius. It comes to us from Hugh Meyer. I think this is coming to us from YouTube. Darius, is there a potential shift back to reflation going into Q1 2022 from a potential deflationary scenario in Q3, Q4 2021? So he's asking almost, is there a potential for a whipsaw effect? Uh, that's the low probability event currently, according to our models. Um, reflation is a very low probability from a bottom-up perspective um, throughout the second half of the, or throughout starting in, the, in September through the first quarter of next first quarter of next year. So I don't we don't currently see that. The only thing that would catalyze that to me would be a more draconian response to Delta and Lambda that catalyzes a a real meaningful you know shutdown of the economy. Not a, not like what we saw last year, but a directional shutdown of the economy that we can reemerge from. Once vaccinations are get to a certain place, and once you know the case counts and things like that come down, that's all hypothetical. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, so to answer the question, no, I, I don't think reflation. I think people, it's, it, and I know Hugh, he's, he's a great guy, and I appreciate the question, Hugh. I think people just want to go back to the easy money that they were making from November to May. Like that was the easiest money I've ever made in my career. I'm sure it's a lot of easiest money a lot of people ever made in their careers. The chart just went straight up for pretty much anything that was pro-inflation and straight down for anything that, was, that had duration risk. Now the game is hard again. Like this is why this is why it's how you separate the pros from the joes. It's like can you make money when things aren't doing this or things aren't doing that? And that's that's sort of the name of the game here. Jack, thoughts on easy money and the reflation trade? Well, I think, and Darius, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Darius, the way that you construct your models at 42 macro. Because you don't just look at growth, you look at the rate of change of growth, mm -hmm. that it almost ensures that there's a cyclicality, right? Like if you have inflation up to 5.4%, the only way that it can't be deflationary or disinflationary is if it goes up to 6%, which, you know, and yeah. it becomes less and less likely the, the steeper you go. So it's like a roller coaster. Like the higher you go, the more down you have to go, right? Yeah, totally. And going back to the principal component analysis you highlighted, the number one and number two factors for the vast majority of economies. Is the rate of change of growth and the rate of change of inflation? Ray Dalio will tell you that. You know, Jim Simons will tell you that. Everybody will tell you that who spent time sort of backtesting economies and financial markets in a more systematic, thoughtful, robust manner, like we do here at Forty Two Macro. Yeah.
Let me just throw this in, and I don't know what the significance is, but I saw it coming off across the wire just before we went on today. Uh, there is a level four uh, alert coming out of CNBC, uh, excuse me, out of CDC uh, from the uh, talking about Israel right now. Now, this was particularly concerning to me because Israel has the highest rate of vaccine success with regard to people being fully vaccinated anywhere in the world. Israel now, by CDC, a level four risk, level four threat in the most vaccinated country on Earth. I'm not sure what that means, but it certainly caught my attention. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I will just note this is that look at Moderna, uh, that stock, you know, that vaccine maker uh, surged something like 16 or 17 percent um, day. Yeah, looks like we're going to have to wrap here. We've gone a little bit long, as we always do with you, Darius. Jack, final <laughs> thoughts? Um, I'm, uh, you know, I, not, not a ton for me, Ash. Darius, jump in. Final thoughts. What are you going to be looking at for the week ahead uh, with regard to CPI and everything else on your macro dashboard? Yeah, so obviously Wednesday CPI next Tuesday we're going to get retail sales industrial reduction, which I think will further confirm us, you know the inflection lower in the U.S. economy. Uh, but more importantly, just as a broader takeaway, keep stay invested. You know we're not we're not at a place where we see a tremendous amount of downside risk and risk assets. However, we are at a place and have been at a place where you should be defensive within risk assets. So that means don't don't run out there and buy your dips in your favorite silver miner, your 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 Nigerian gold miner or whatever it is. You know, let's 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 tighten it up as it relates to you know taking more thoughtful defensive risks, but let's not necessarily head for the exits now because again, we could still see some positivity emerge from a, from a very dovish CPI plan. Yeah, I would only add to that one thing, which is keep watching RVDB, where no matter what happens, you are always part of the action. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jack. Thanks very much, Darius. Thanks for watching, everyone. Thanks for your questions. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.